Welcome, welcome, welcome. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. And thank you guys once again for joining the Nine Innings Podcast hosted by yours truly, Kevin Thompson, founder and CEO of Nine Eye Capital Group. Thank you guys for joining us. As I always say, subscribe to this channel. As I always say, go and get my book, MLB to CFP, live on Apple and Amazon. If you have any questions, comments, you're concerned, you can email us at info at nineicapitalgroup.com. Send us your questions, or you can go to the website at www.9icapitalgroup.com. Schedule an appointment. As you know, we're here to do what? Educate, empower, and engage. And today we have a wonderful, wonderful guest, Professor Michael G. Thomas, PhD of the University of Georgia, TED Talker, entrepreneur, educator. We're so happy to have him. Michael G. Thomas, let's get it. We have Michael Thomas, PhD from the University of Georgia. Thank you for joining the Nine Innings Podcast, my friend. Yes, yes. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate you, Kevin. Well, so first and foremost, how was your uh, Memorial Day weekend? I know we just came off of Memorial Day. I hope you had a wonderful time. So tell me a little bit about your time on Memorial Day. Like, what'd you do? That that kind of absolutely. You know what? Honestly, um, I we I spent a lot of time at the park this Memorial Day. Honestly, just like in, in deep reflection and contemplation and doing some grounding type stuff, uh, just really just just kind of thinking about I've, I've been in a space currently where I've really been considering my my health in a way that I hadn't before. Mm-hmm. And not that I've gone to the doctor and have gotten a bad report or whatever it may be, but these conversations around longevity and longevity research, there's so much money going into these areas in terms of startups in in Atlanta and Tel Aviv and so on and so forth. Like this is becoming a really big industry. And, uh, and I've been, I've literally been thinking um, even the way that we think about how we engage in medicine, it's very reactive and not proactive. Yes, very. So, so why 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 couldn't we say that you know what my goal is to live to be a hundred and a hundred and five, and and my and my engagement with you from this point forward as my physician yeah. is to help me achieve that goal. No different than like if you're working with a financial planner or whatever it may be. Like even when we estimate right uh, retirement life expectancy and all these other different things, mm-hmm. I mean, how often do we even have conversations really about a family's medical history and whether or not they actually have instances where men die younger? Like, do yeah. we as professionals really have those conversations yeah. to be able to accurately really consider what retirement life expectancy is actually going to look like? Yeah, and. If we understand these other different things as it relates to longevity and quality of life, should that not even be something that we should consider as financial professionals so that the clients that we serve not only secure the bag, but they're able to enjoy the bag with not just longevity, but good quality of life throughout their longevity. And those are two different conversations. So we have people living longer with poor quality of life. That is not what people are considering when they think about living beyond a certain age. So I've just really been in this contemplation state about health, 
my health and me being just as proactive about my health uh, as I am about my money. So that's 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 where I was. It looks like deep thoughts with uh, Michael Thomas over here, ladies <laughs> and gentlemen. I love it. I love it. I love it. So you and I have had a, a couple instances where we had a great opportunity to, to kind of get some things off of our chest as men yeah, to have a good yeah. conversation. So I want to start there. When we talk about our whys and why are we in this industry, I think yeah. you know mine. I, I yeah. feel like, and I don't care what people say about me or how they feel. I don't trust anyone in this industry. I don't Understood. trust the fact that there's a person on the other side of the table that has my best interest at heart. I know Understood. I've been a victim of a Ponzi scheme. I've been in the back rooms of some yeah. of these insurance offices and, the, and these professors. How much premium can we do this month? It's not about yeah. how we can help someone. It's how much premium. So yeah. you and I both know that that that, that the, the industry in itself is is. And here's another funny part. So I, and I and I and I'll give you this one. So Goldman Sachs comes out this week saying, "Hey, we need to invest in black women, and we're going to do X amount of billion dollars inside of black women's business. And by the way, that's going to create." X amount in regards to additional growth GDP for the yeah. economy. Now I get it. They're yeah. talking to the investors and all the other people that are putting money into this thing to make them believe that this is a good thing. However, why can it be, even if it's not good for GDP, it's good for people. Yeah. So, but you know, my why I know I kind of went on a couple. No, of I, I get there, it. But yeah, man, tell me a little bit about your why. Yeah. My, my why is is rooted in in community and mm -hmm. in interpersonal relationships yeah um because i i personally feel that if individuals are able to have better financial stability coupled with emotional and relational stability that they're that they could be in a space to where they can have the types of relationships and quality of relationships that are the things that ultimately really matter the most mm -hmm. to people, quite honestly. Um, and we all say this, it's like, Hey, you can climb the corporate ladder, yeah, get to the top, decide that you don't want to be there anymore. And as soon as you leave, probably within about six months to a year, nobody's talking about you anymore. Exactly. Nobody, nobody, nobody really cares that you were the person who created the tool or the process or the thing or the strategy, you're not going to benefit from that anymore. You don't have equity in that from, from that way. And then oftentimes, how often, if you've ever left a position or a space uh, where people after you've left have like reached out to you and just kind of like checked in on you and made sure that you're good and say like, we actually miss you. Yeah. Maybe you might have maybe one person who you really felt like you had that connection with, mm -hmm. but then there were probably other people that you felt like you had that connection with and they've never reached out. Absolutely. And then if they did reach out, it was because now that same place did them wrong <laughs> and they're about to leave. And now they want to kind of partner with you on why that they X, Y, Z is just human behavior, quite honestly. Yeah. So we, we do so much in the pursuit of money, in the pursuit of opulence, in the pursuit of excess to think that it's going to make us whole and complete and to feel loved. When at the end of the day, it kind it's kind of fool's gold. Mm -hmm. Once you come full circle, 
which is why you have so many people who get to a certain point in life and they, and they're like, money isn't everything mm -hmm. because I still feel empty. And I've only realized that now I really have to do the work on me yeah. to make me happy and joy. I can't get that from external things that has to be an internal place. Uh, my thing though, however, is that I do believe that you have to have a certain level of financial stability. So you're not navigating volatility constantly yeah. because if that's the case, psychologically, emotionally, neurologically, you're in survival mode, yeah. right? And we're not using our prefrontal cortex. It's all fight, flight, trying to just basically survive. So my why is really rooted in this is not about money. Money is not the important, the most important thing you are. I just use money because everybody wants to talk about it, quite honestly, yeah. as a way to work in constantly the conversation that, yeah, I know that you want to do this, but you're the most important thing. So this why question is something that I'm always asking clients. It's like, hey, you want to do X, Y, and Z. Why is this important to you? Mm -hmm. And I'll say, well, it's important to me because of X, Y, and Z. And I'll say, well, why was that important to you? And I'll say, well, X, Y, and Z. And I was like, well, where did that come from? Yeah. Right. So now I'm looking at, so we're like pulling back the layers and this really isn't about money. It's their belief that money is going to be this conduit to rectify a situation, personal fulfillment, satisfaction, even if I'm dealing with um, low self-esteem or whatever it may be. If I drive the car, if I have the home, people will love me, right? Yeah. Uh, so money is not the main thing. It's a conduit to what people feel as if they need to complete their lives. So there's two ends of the spectrum, whether this thing actually does complete their lives and whether they fully understand the context of this thing. And then what's their where, what's their why, as it relates to why they've internalized that I need money to achieve something. And what I've, what I've learned is that when you can get people to focus less on money and more on their own growth and development and things of that nature, it's funny that they start desiring less. Yes. Yes. Right. So then now I don't need as much as I thought I was going to need. I don't need da 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 da. Right. And it's such a beautiful thing because now I can enjoy the day and I don't have to wait until I retire to start to enjoy life. Right. Um, it's, it's so for me, that's that's my why is to to reorient people from making money to making from making money the main thing to recognizing and realizing that they were the main thing and that they always were the main thing. And, uh, and I think that there's something elegant. I think that there's something beautiful about that. Uh, and it's rooted in self-compassion, self-love, grace, and forgiveness. And I think that those are the types of things that are actually freeing, not rooted, making money always. So yeah, rooted, anyway, rooted in abundance. Yeah, you're rooted in abundance. Uh, I, I love your philosophy. A lot of businesses and organizations can take that con that concept and use it for good. Yes. And even and and I again, I I have been hurt by this industry, and that's why I feel like I'm a freedom fighter in the industry today. Understood. You said something powerful. Um, I know you didn't want me to mention your book, and and again, <laughs> our phenomenal phenomenal book about Black financial culture. Yeah. Uh, I appreciate that because you, 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 you've exposed, I mean, you, you let yourself go like, like you talked to, you, you opened yourself up yeah. and, and that was, that was powerful. And again, you said something, 
People won't remember what you said or did, but how you made them feel. Yeah, yeah. And what you just what you just mentioned there. And that's that's a, that's a Maya Angelou. Yeah. Uh, quote. Right? Yes. Yes. Uh, it's, it's it's just it's rooted in that. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's powerful to 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 feel that the lasting impression when you're having a conversation with a client when you're really breaking down. Um, hey. And this is a good one. Well, you're going to spend, you're, you're about to get your tax return. Yes. And you're going to, uh, what do you want to do with it? Well, I'm going to buy X. As a financial planner, we're going to say, nah, man, just put that money away. Save, save, save. But in yeah. your book, you mentioned a, a very, very unique situation. So tell me about that situation, about the lady who's wanting to yeah. Absolutely. So I, so that situation was a, that was, that's not my story. Yeah. Um, so that is a good friend of mine mm -hmm. uh, who we graduated from UGA, Bruce. Uh, he works at the University of Kentucky and uh, we still do a lot of amazing work. So when I was doing my TED talk, uh, I was in my TED talk is financial empathy, understanding the story beneath the numbers. Yes. And I had heard him use that story before. And I felt like it was just so fitting for what I was doing. Mm -hmm. And I asked him, I was like, hey, Bruce, would you be OK with me using this story in my TED talk? He said, absolutely, because it, the spirit of it was similar. I just thought that that story just like encapsulated it, right? 100%. So basically it was just a situation because it, it it's rooted in general assumptions that we have people and how they spend their tax dollars, mm -hmm. especially individuals who are lower socioeconomic status. Yes. Uh, so this story is twofold. It's not just about what the person is doing. It's about the perception of how we feel yes. what the person is doing with having limited context about their lives. Because again, money is the main thing. Yeah. The person wasn't, right? Yeah. So in this particular story, a lady comes in, she's about to get her tax refund. The person providing the tax services, and this is voluntary income tax assistance, so VITA. Um, and the person asked, the service provider asked her, well, what are you going to do with your taxes? Because the goal is, is to get people to save, buy a bond, all these other different things, or at least have a plan. And then she says, I'm going to buy like a really nice size flat screen television. And the the service provider then goes down this process of trying to talk her out of it. Right. Like, why are you spending your money on this? It's frivolous. It doesn't matter. Um, you can do this with your money. And then going down the spill of, right, if you put this here and it can stay here for this long, you get compound growth. If you take on this level of risk, mm -hmm. just overly like trying to explain something to this person mm -hmm. but he didn't understand the spirit of what that person was doing mm -hmm. and she basically looks at him and tells him that no i'm gonna buy this flat screen television because the neighborhood that we stay in is a pretty rough neighborhood mm -hmm. i know that if we have a really nice television cable and the video game systems and things of that nature i'll be able to keep my kids in the house Mm -hmm. I'll be able to keep their friends at my house so that they won't be running these streets and be susceptible to the things that are transpiring. Now, mind you, even if you're not lower SES, mm -hmm. even if you're not black, even if you're not X, Y, and Z, like none of that matters. Any and everybody 
can understand the emotion of that mother and trying to keep her children and her friends and the friends of her children safe. Yes. But because so much of what we've done in our industry and space, now, mind you, I did the first iteration of this TED talk in 2016, mm-hmm. the official TED talk in 2017. We literally went through a decade where financial shaming was in vogue. And we don't want to have that conversation right now. Yeah. Which is fascinating to me. We've almost like completely done a 180 pivot and have acted like we haven't contributed to the very financial shame that now we're talking about financial psychology and financial, all these different things in various spaces. When we were actually the contributors of creating some of the issue and problem that now we're facing and now we're providing the solution for it, which is incredibly fascinating to me because there have been so many extraordinary people mm-hmm. who've been in this mental space of why we need financial therapy, need to understand systems theory, bounded rationality, so on and so forth for decades and no one would listen to them. Right. Uh, so for me, it was a way for me to speak directly to the financial services space and address the issue in a way that was palatable and would not cause for people to become overly defensive. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to externalize everything in a way, even though I'm, I'm talking about you, Yeah, <laughs> but I'm talking about you in such an externalized way so that you could see yourself in a safe place. Mm-hmm. And, not, and you not then feel judgment and all these other different things, right? So I'm telling these stories as I'm navigating this process uh, to help people see themselves. And then in doing that, to create the fertile ground for them to open up to why they need to engage in a process of empathy. Yes. Right? Or an empathic process of knowing someone. Because if you don't engage in empathy, um, oftentimes it's a sympathetic response is that yeah. you feel bad for somebody. Uh, however, at the end of the day, you can only do what you know to do to assist them, mm-hmm. but it's not rooted in them. It's rooted in your feelings mm-hmm. of how you feel about them. So any recommendations that you provide, if it's a sympathetic response, right? And sympathy, when you start to break that down, right? It's the feeling and it's the same feeling. So usually it's a community or shared feeling. So if you're, if you're upper class and you don't understand the plight of lower class or middle class, because you've always been in this space, you can engage in sympathy because it's how it makes you feel. But the issue though, is that you can only provide solutions that are rooted in where you are. And then we try to push those down and then wonder why they don't work. And then when they don't work, we say, oh, that person, to absolve ourselves for not actually doing the work, we say that person doesn't care. Yeah. That person didn't listen. That person that's that person that, whatever it may be. But you cannot expect someone who is highly susceptible to financial shocks, multiple financial shocks, variable streams of income, navigating a landscape where you have to work three or four jobs to piece things together, right? And the time and the energy, and if you have kids and someone gets sick or whatever it may be, to be able to navigate life in such a linear direction that you may not have the capacity to do that. It it doesn't make sense. So what empathy does is that it says, you know what? There are some things that I don't understand about this person, 
let me engage in understanding where they are. So that's cognitive empathy. Then we have effective empathy. Now I'm emotionally connected to where this person is. It's no different than like if you have a good friend of yours mm -hmm. and they're hurting and you're hurting because they're hurting, mm -hmm. right? That's effective empathy. But then when you, when you merge the two together, the knowledge of the situation, the feeling of the situation, then we can move to compassionate empathy is because now I understand how this person feels, but I also have enough knowledge about this person's situation to decide whether or not I have the capacity to effectively serve the needs of this individual. So, so compassion is taking action mm -hmm. when necessary. However, compassion can also be that I don't have the tools I am not equipped to serve this person, mm -hmm. even though I feel and understand where they are, but I don't hide and run from it. I then say, hey, well, these this is my social capital network. These are the people that I know. And this is someone that I would like to introduce you to who could potentially be a better service to you than I ever could be. That's compassion, too. Yeah. Uh, a compassion, empathy as well. But when we talk about compassion and empathy, I think sometimes we always make it seem as if like you have to do and you have to feel at a certain level. Sympathy is all feeling. Yeah. There's very little understanding. It's all feeling. That's what people are talking about. When we're talking about empathy, it's actually a healthy balance of understanding and feeling, not being our cognitive capacities being overridden by our emotions and having the capacity to move on behalf of another in terms of what's in their best interest. And if I can't, acknowledging that, but still helping connecting this person to someone who can. So but that was the whole point of that. Yeah, said, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's powerful, man, because empathy is, is such a powerful, powerful mechanism. People often confuse the two, sympathy yeah. and empathy. A yeah. uh, couple more things real quick before we get off. You, you talked about this. I know this is really big in our community. For example, the Cosby Show. You bought that up in your in, in, in your book. I did. I bought yeah. a lot of taboo stuff in that book, Kevin. Yeah, man. I, was like, I was like, should I bring up the Cosby Show? The, well, it but was such it was such a huge part of my it's life. It's a life. it's powerful because it's a I powerful representation of black culture. The music. I would not be where I am without the Cosby Show. Exactly. Like, period. But but guess what? But guess what our parents told us? Guess what our parents told us? Black people don't live like that. That's not yeah. real. But it's yeah. but it's okay, Kevin. You have that story wired. too, huh? You have that story too. Yes, my parents. That's the same crazy. Thing. Yeah, I thought it was. I, I, it's more like my brother. My brother said, "I don't know why my, we don't live like that." Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. crazy. I I knew those conversations were happening. I just I just I never recall us sharing that. Yeah. Like the spirit of it was there. But I just never remember us actually having the conversation about what, but what, then what is blackness? Oh, I will tell you what it is. Is the representation is the wire. It's, yeah. it's New Jack City. It's yeah, yeah. all of that glamorization. It's, it's, it's and that's the represent, that's what people get. And that's why when you see a black man on the street right now, you're fearful of him because you're constantly being presented with this image of him being a criminal. Yeah, and I'll be the honest with you. Music as well, and I'm like, why is it so hard to understand that? I'm sorry. Yeah, and it's it's just not it's just not it's just not people of other races and ethnicities. There are black people living in our communities right now that are fearful of the people in our community right now. Hundred percent. 
right? So I, I think it's sometimes I think it's disingenuous to put it on, let's say, just white people when we have conversations about like when you see somebody, you walk to the other side of the street, this side or the other. Um, when when I was growing up, I was growing up in Gary, Indiana. Um, and during the time middle school into high school, we were like either number one murder capital of the world or of the U.S. or in the top three consistently across the board. And I even knew that there were some blocks that you could not walk down. Mm-hmm. There were some streets that because you know that there was a dope boy or you know that there were some gang members uh, that if you if you if you walked over there. They were going to stop you. They were going to harass you. You were going to get checked down, X, Y, and Z. So much so, Kevin, that we literally plot out pathways where we would have to walk to school and from school yeah. to avoid these scenarios. Like, this is my mom sitting down with me saying, you cannot go over here. You cannot, like, so there was no freedom. Yeah, Everything was boxed in. Yeah. Like there was no freedom in terms of how you navigate space, even in my own community. Mm-hmm. So that whole narrative of me watching the Cosby show and my mom basically telling me that black folks don't live like that. It it started it started to piece this thread together of other things that I've been sensing. Mm-hmm. It's also sharing a book where even my baseball coaches like I grew up playing baseball. I played some in college and. They would even tell us before we would go and play against all white teams uh, that they would kind of set this expectation that we couldn't beat them. Mm -hmm. Right. Or any white spaces that it's you can't compete in those spaces. That was a paradigm. Mm -hmm. That was a a ideology that for them came from somewhere as well. Right. And then after a while, it just becomes a part of the ecosystem of things. And then people will just begin to start accepting it and and believing it. Uh, For me, though, I never bought into it uh, that I wasn't able to compete or to play with or to X, Y, and Z. Um, What I did see, though, was cousins and friends Um, either dying because of gang violence, getting caught up because of drug-related things, Mm -hmm. alcoholism, just everything across the board, that I would rather go this other path where you're telling me that I don't belong. And now, mind you, growing up where I grew up, it was was still very kind of divided community-wise. Yeah, absolutely. So even though I was trying to engage in these spaces, I could still feel that I was not welcome there, that people did not want us there, right? This or that or the other. But I, I still did not let that deter me because at the end of the day, um, I just, I just, I, I just think that we are better together. I believe in the power of community, the construct of community. And um, I've learned over the years that it's just a part of who I am to want to be a connector, uh, to be want to be someone who can engage in spaces and do all these different things for the good and common good for everybody. And I made up my mind at a very early age that I have to lean into my convictions, regardless of what 
what's going on around me, what other people are saying, or this, that, other, if it's a loved one, if it's a coach, if it's X, Y, and Z, I need to lean into my convictions. And I think that up to this point, it served me well. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that. So I'm going to go to that African proverb you mentioned in the book. If you want to go fast, go at it alone. If you want to go far, go together. Community, you're absolutely right. And you and I probably felt the same thing growing up. I was called multiple names. I was at a point where I was a who's who kid and all this other stuff. And I just could grasp things really, really quickly. I had a lot of white friends. I mean, but I had a lot of black friends. But ultimately, people thought, I remember remember this, but I was playing baseball. Uh, we were in the uh, Arizona Fall League. I was playing. This is Fall League for prospects and things like that. And somebody saw my wife come in. I think at the time she may have been my girlfriend. And she was sitting there saying, Kyle, I thought you would have you a snow bunny. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? Yeah, I got a black wife. You know, it's all good. I mean, Kevin. we didn't think you were like that. We didn't know. I was like, man, hey, it's all good, man. But Kevin, that's that, that's that judgment piece. Yeah. That you receive from within your community. I similar story. We have a lot of similar stories, dude. Yeah. We, need to, we need to connect a little bit more. Yeah. Um, I gave a pre- a presentation at AFCPE. Mm-hmm. Um, and so basically, long story short, I share a picture of my family. Mm-hmm. And my wife is she she's a black woman, she's of much darker complexion than I am. Mm-hmm. And after the presentation, I had more people come up to me. And comment on the fact that I had a black wife than anything else. And I, and I'm not in my mindset, Kevin, Mm -hmm. I'm not thinking, I didn't marry her because of optics and being down or whatever it may be. I married her because I think that she's an exceptional woman. Um, She is a leader. She is smart. She's ambitious. She's everything that I would want uh, in a significant other. Uh, But the optics of it, was again this whole judgment piece? Yeah. When people see where you are and in certain stages of your life, mm-hmm. they assume that once you move, once you create that distance, that you no longer see value in who you are. Yeah. By potentially, and I'm not going to say that there aren't people who are out there that have internal things, maybe potentially that they're dealing with. Mm-hmm. In terms of self-esteem, yeah. that they feel as if the closer that they can get to a notion of what it means to be white, yeah. that it makes them feel a certain way. Um, and then there are other individuals where they have a spouse who is white, where that has nothing to do with anything. Yeah, This person is just absolutely who they love. They're prob- they could probably be more of where they're from than some of the other people where they're yeah, from. True, but they don't true. even know that about this person because this person could have grown up in a lower SES, middle class, whatever it may be, and have similar experience. Listen, you don't know, but yet we lead with judgment. Yes. And so it's incredibly frustrating. And people want to take narratives to justify their opinions and their emotions, mm-hmm. whether it's for you. Or against you, and uh, but you're you're absolutely right. And again, I just I I never would have thought that that was a thing. Even as I teach yeah. at the University of Georgia right now, I have students who come up to me every semester and tell me, "I so appreciate that there's a black man teaching at the university because you are the first male in many instances." Mm-hmm. And then secondly, blackmail that I've ever had 
or seen representation of as a professor at a university like UGA or throughout their entire educational experience. <clears throat> and again, I don't walk into these classes or these spaces, think I, I, I don't think that I'm black when I'm walking around necessarily, unless I'm in some type of intellectual conversation or whatever it may be. But clearly it's a thing, clearly it matters. And not just for black students, but for my white students, my Latinx students, my Asian students, because if they see me as a person of authority, a person who is knowledgeable, a person who cares about the profession, about the content that I'm teaching, about them more in particularly, I feel as if me just being in a space is creating opportunities for a generation of folks to actually consider without pause, utilizing a black financial professional because of the experience that they had with me at some point. Mm. Wouldn't even question it. Now, mind you, navigating this space, I've had conversations with financial planning firms where I asked them, I understand your business model and I understand the communities that you serve. Be honest with me. Are there places that you know that I would not be able to serve because of offhanded conversations that are being had currently and you know that they're being had and they're uncomfortable and whatever it may be, this or that or the other. And I've literally had firms tell me, not just one, multiple, that yeah, we, we've had some clients, we've had some situations where we wouldn't put you in that position or we wouldn't send you here for X, Y, and Z because I get it, I see it. And uh, I would, I, the last thing I, I'll, I'll end with this, Kevin. Yeah. I had a client uh, maybe, and this was a financial coaching client, maybe four years ago, older woman, older white woman. She comes into the office and when she sees me, I can tell that she's taken aback. <laughs> and then in our conversation, Kevin, she told me, Something along the lines of, I wasn't expecting to work with a Negro. Interesting. And it was, it was, it was very interesting. Yeah. And everything in me knew the spirit of where that was coming from. Mm -hmm. But I said, you know what? Because again, my whole life has been following my conviction, serving others, and considering that, hey, if I stick this out. Just maybe this can turn into something really, really good. Yeah. And we did. We ended up having 17 sessions together. Mm -hmm. She was able to navigate the situation effectively that she was wanting to navigate. And at the very end of it, uh, she wrote me, she gave me three different cards, each of which just had three different beautiful messages about the experiences that we had together, how it helped her, how she didn't know or couldn't see a way forward or whatever it may be. And it's not my, I don't, it's not my responsibility. I used to put that weight on me to go out and to hope that people see me or see other black people differently mm -hmm. than what's perpetuated uh, in the media. What I've realized is that all I can do is that each and every day is just show up and to be the man that I am and to love on people regardless, because I can't control how they view me or how they see me, but I am not going to live a life 
where I'm going to allow other people to dictate my spirit and how I wish to leave the world better than I found it. And all I can do that is one person at a time. I'm not going to save the world. I didn't write this book trying to save the world. Yeah. I wrote this book for whoever needed this book, who needed someone to be vulnerable so that they can then embrace their own vulnerabilities to see somebody who's been hurt and come out of the thick of it. So if they've been hurt and they're struggling to see a pathway as it relates to how could this ever be better for me, quite honestly, to see somebody basically come from nothing yeah. and gradually over time build to some semblance of something, right? Oftentimes when we, when I've read books about personal finances, they're generally about somebody who's the expert. You need to listen to me. Here are the top five ways to do it. I'm this, I'm that. What I'm saying is I'm not this, I'm not that. My life isn't perfect. My life won't be perfect. There's going to be volatility every step of the way. And in the midst of that, I've still gradually and slowly built. And I think that that's the reality for real people. Yeah. And so I wrote this book for real people, non-judgmental, leads with empathy, ends with, with compassion. And I don't do this in a paternalistic way. I basically, in so many words, say that, you know what? I trust you. I believe you. I see you. You have more power than you think. Own it. I've given you some things to consider as you navigate yeah. this process uh -huh. for you to be able to go back to and to say, all right, I want to learn more about this or I want to learn more about this. But you have the power. That's what freedom is. It's not me telling you what to do, how to do it or how to live your best life. Kevin, my best life is going into the woods right now, grabbing a good book, posting up a good tree, posting up next to a good tree, reading, watching the squirrels, watching the birds. I could do that for hours. Mm. I love nature. That's life for me. For someone else, it can be completely different. You can't look at me and then use me as a barometer for happiness because what gives me happiness may not give you happiness. And that's okay. Yeah. Right. And so I just, I, my, my whole thing has been, I want you to see you in my story, but I want you to be you in your story. Right. And that's the, and I believe in you basically. And here's some financial things to consider in the backdrop of, I think some really good stories to navigate these things in a condensed way. And uh, that's what I wanted to achieve. And I think that I said, I think I did it. Yeah, you did a great job with the book, Black Financial Culture. Uh, thank you for joining us today on the 980s podcast, man. This has yes. been an incredible, incredible experience. TED Talker. We have an entrepreneur, educator, <laughs> professor, doctor. Man, you've done it all, man. And, and you're you're a great, great uh, uh, example of where we're all headed. We're not just bouncing a basketball like, like I always said. We're not just hitting a baseball yeah. or tackling somebody or catching a football. We're doing big things right now in the black in the black community. And yeah. I appreciate having you on the Nine Innings Podcast today, my friend. Thank you, sir. You've just listened to the Nine Innings Podcast hosted by your truly Kevin Thompson, founder and CEO of Nine Nine Capital Group. You heard Michael G. Thomas today from University of Georgia, professor, entrepreneur, dad, uh, TED Talker, phenomenal, phenomenal person. 
His book, Black, the Black uh, Black Financial Culture, is out there right now on Amazon, Apple, Google, all anywhere you can find your books. Go ahead and get that from Michael G. Thomas. Read the book this weekend. Phenomenal, phenomenal book. Uh, really a deep dive into his personal relationships and his personal situations, which are good. But as you know, we're here to do what? Educate, empower, and engage. And today, I hope we educated you on some of the things through about Michael G. Thomas's life and also about some of the things in the, inside the Black community, what we're going through in regards to financial education, in regards to going through the difference between sympathy and empathy, and also going through having a better understanding around money. Today, we talked about all of those things here on the Nine Innings Podcast. Thank you guys for being loyal listeners. Subscribe to the channel. Thank you guys for your support. Get my book, MLB to CFP. Thank you guys for all the things you do. Subscribe to the channel. Thank you. Stay humble. Stay safe. We'll see you again next week. <laughs>